John Ziegler here. Excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 104 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting bravely from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at Individual, the number one pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. The title for this episode is, Is America Heading for a Breakdown or a Breakup? Or perhaps both. Uh, This podcast has always been intended to be a vehicle to tell the truth about the Trump presidency from a unique perspective. That unique perspective being mine as a long, lifelong, actually, Republican and conservative who loathes Donald Trump, but who can understand his appeal to certain segments of the population. The Trump presidency is now, at least for now and for the foreseeable future, is now all about the coronavirus. So obviously much, though certainly not all, of this podcast is also going to be about the coronavirus. There's been some misconceptions, I think, understandable given the title of this podcast, which is Individual One, about what this podcast is supposed to be about. This is not about me attacking Donald Trump on every single issue, no matter what the reality is, because I'm supposed to make liberals feel better about their view of Trump because I'm a conservative who's selling out all my principles. There are a lot of never-Trump conservatives who will do exactly that, and I am learning on a daily basis just how many of those never-Trump conservatives there are. I I am now convinced, and this will be part of what I talk about in this podcast, Uh, although maybe this deserves its own episode in the future, I am now convinced 
that almost every so-called professional, in other words, people who do this for a career, professional never-Trump conservative is really mostly, if not totally, a fraud, and that they're not really conservatives anymore. They're just people who miss the Trump train and for career purposes are now appealing to liberals by attacking Donald Trump no matter what the reality of the situation is. And to be clear, when it comes to the virus, there is a ton to criticize Donald Trump about. Correct. He has done an absolutely horrific job on multiple levels. Correct. I have said from the beginning that one of the major problems uh, he created was that his messaging changed almost on a daily, if not hourly, basis. He has not picked a lane. He has contradicted himself constantly. He has uh, has destroyed whatever capital or credibility he may have still had from the previous three years of his presidency, all on things that were not true. And this is devastating. In a crisis, a president needs credibility. Trump has none. Correct. And if I was doing what I do purely for my own personal self-interest, which I understand that almost everybody in the, the public commentary business, that's the number one thing they're concerned about. What is good for them? All right. And that's a fact. That is 100 percent a fact, whether it's news media, commentary, whatever it is. The, the people in this business are narcissistic. They're selfish. All they care about is themselves. One of the many misconceptions about me, and I get it because there's not that many people like me, is that I will often do exactly the opposite. I will say things I know with 100 percent certitude to be against my own self-interest if I believe them to be true. I, will, I have no problem jumping on hand grenades if I think it's for the better good, whether that good be for the future of the country, the world, or just the truth in general. I'm willing to do that. It's a dumb move on my part. My wife hates it, trust me, but that's how I am built. That's in my DNA. And so if I really wanted to take a perspective on this whole virus thing that was in my self-interest, I would do nothing but harp on what I have been saying about the dangers of the Trump presidency from day one. In fact, before there was a Trump presidency, which is this guy is completely and totally unqualified, not just to be president, but particularly when it comes to a crisis. Correct. That has always been my number one concern about Donald Trump. Watching back in the days of The Apprentice on NBC, he was so pathetic in the boardroom making the decisions about who should get fired and who shouldn't, he wasn't even qualified to be a reality TV show host. I mean that sincerely. It would drive me crazy because my wife liked the show. It would drive me crazy to just watch that. He was not qualified to be a reality TV show host. Watching his mind in action was like watching an infant. Maybe an infant on drugs of some sort. That's how bad it was. And so the idea that a, a lying con man who's unqualified would be president under the best of circumstances was always dangerous. But in a crisis, it was potentially catastrophic. And all of that has come home to roost on this. And that's important not to be lost, because I really do believe that if, let's say, Hillary Clinton had won, which I have said many times, I wish she did. I hate Hillary Clinton. 
did, did a documentary film that was an anti-Clinton film back in the day. Have no love for her. But if she had been president, not because she would have handled the situation all that much differently in all likelihood, who knows? I'm, I'm guessing she probably would have been more competent in some ways. But if she had been president, I don't believe we would be in nearly as bad a situation, partially because she would have probably taken this more seriously than Trump did at the beginning. But more importantly than that, with her being president, the forces of the left would not have been as dramatically unleashed in the name of tyranny and overreaction as they have in this situation because the Trump presidency has so driven the left insane that it has provoked all of their very worst instincts, all of them. And what we have seen is a massive amount of tyranny and socialism and overreaction and adherence to uh, faulty, if not false, narratives that would not be driven uh, almost like they're on steroids if Hillary Clinton had been president. So both from a practical standpoint, not taking this seriously enough soon enough, as well as the overall bigger picture of how the political forces have been unleashed because Trump is president, Trump deserves an enormous amount of blame for where we are and where we will be on this thing in America for a very, very long time to go. How much longer? I don't know, but it's gonna, it might be the rest of my life. I'm 53 years old. It might be the rest of my life and maybe even longer than that, that we will still be feeling the impact of how this whole thing goes down. I mean, we are now a socialist country. Whether that maintains itself forever, I don't know. But it, and certainly in the, in the short run and even in the short long run, I have no doubt that it will. And depending on how the next election goes, we might be even more deeply invested in socialism into the future. All because Donald Trump was president, he was unqualified, and his presidency has provoked a lot of things that would not have happened if, for instance, Hillary Clinton was president. However, on the other side, the liberal overreach, and I don't mean just by Democrats. I'm talking about by the liberal establishment, and there absolutely is a liberal establishment in this country. Forget about the fact that uh, there's an alleged Republican president and Republicans control the U.S. Senate. When it comes to the actual decision makers, and we've seen this in this crisis, the people really driving all of this are almost all liberals. The academic science establishment, the media establishment, Democratic governors who now feel empowered to do whatever the heck they want because we're in this alleged catastrophic crisis. Even Republican governors intimidated as hell by the news media and the attacks they're going to get if they stand up for basic freedoms and rights and rationality and common sense. This liberal overreach has been at least as scary as Trump's incompetence in all of this. But let's not lose sight of Trump's incompetence. And since the last time we did a podcast, there was a very dramatic moment that exposed this in a way that really hit home with a lot of people, and understandably so. I have related this to a Wizard of Oz moment. You know, the moment when uh, in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her friends are there to meet the wizard, the great and powerful Oz, and all of a sudden uh, Toto the dog uh, alerts them that there's an old man behind the curtain who doesn't really know what the heck he's doing. And there is no Wizard of Oz. 
Well, we saw that uh, live on television when the president of the United States decided to go on a riff and decided to theorize that since light and disinfectant appear to kill the virus, that maybe, just maybe, we should find a way to inject light and disinfectant into human beings to kill the virus. And he did so live on national television, speaking to Dr. Bricks. And unfortunately, this is audio. I'm sure you've probably seen the video. It's gone very viral. And Dr. Bricks looks like she's being injected with the coronavirus as Trump is speaking to her in this riff where he theorizes that maybe, just maybe, this is the key to coming up with a cure for the coronavirus. And here's what this insanity sounded like. Supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. We'll the right, folks who could. right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. <laughs> it sounds sounds interesting to me. You cannot be serious. <laughs> I mean. Trump would later, because he got destroyed for this, try to claim uh, absurdly that he was being sarcastic there. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, that's not what happened. Uh, Trump lied uh, when he said he was being sarcastic. He was not being sarcastic. Other people tried to defend him, including Dr. Bricks, who said, you know, the president just has this way about him where he likes to talk things through. Uh, OK, I'm all for um, freedom of thought and there's, you know, there's no bad question, but guess what? Especially when you're president of the United States, you do that in private. You, you ask your questions in private and then in public, uh, you don't make insanely stupid statements that make it clear you don't know what the hell you're talking about and destroy any confidence anyone has in anything you're saying. Because if the president of the United States really believes that injecting people with disinfectant might cure the virus as opposed to kill them, regardless of the virus, then how are we supposed to believe him on anything else? You just can't. You cannot do so. He single-handedly in one fell swoop destroyed whatever credibility he might have. And I'm someone, you know, as much as I loathe Trump, at the beginning of this, I honestly gave him some benefit of the doubt that, okay, maybe he's now being serious. Maybe he knows things we don't know. His confidence can't be this delusional. Well, you know what? I was wrong. Uh, his confidence is that delusional uh, because he really is that clueless. And, uh, and, but once again, this, this, this episode was a microcosm of the larger reality. So the, the left uh, goes nuts on this, understandably so. I've got no problem with it. It's absolutely fair game. He was totally wrong. It was absurd. It was a Wizard of Oz moment. But, of course, the left and the media has to overreact because that's what they do. Correct. They always overreact, and oftentimes it ends up, if not playing into Trump's hands, at least mitigating the damage. 
And so what do they do? They immediately come up with, the media does, all these stories, all these stories of Trump supporters supposedly trying to inject themselves with disinfectant to uh, keep themselves immune from the virus. And it turns out, as anybody with half a brain would figure out, that most of these stories are at least mostly, if not totally, bullshit. Uh, and they, they were happening way too fast. It was way too nonsensical. It fits a narrative the media likes. And then when it gets debunked, they look really they look as stupid as the Trump supporters they presume to be. I love the poorly educated. I mean, I mean come on. Trump supporters are dumb. I, I mock them all the time and rightfully so. I love the poorly educated. But even I. Uh, and, and very suspect of the idea that Trump supporters took what the president said and said, OK, we need to start uh, injecting ourselves with disinfectant uh, in order to prepare for the virus. Come on, people. Can, can, can we at least keep some sense of rationality here? Now, there's no question that that moment left a mark. I mean, I have some people in my orbit that are mild Trump supporters who thought, OK, they, that's it for him. Uh, he's done. Uh, from a political standpoint, I, I, it's hard to know how much damage it really did. There's been very little indication in the numbers. Uh, his favorite poll, Rasmussen, which has always been very pro-Trump on the, from the standpoint of his approval rating, actually uh, had him at a, at a very low point uh, yesterday. Uh, but other polls have not been nearly as bad, and it's it's very difficult to know what's data noise and what's going to be something that holds uh, for a long period of time. You got to wait for the dust to settle. There's so much going on. We forget about things very, very quickly in this day and age. But there's no question that did not help him. And it was consistent with this overall problem that he has had of a disjointed message where he's contradicting himself constantly, uh, where he has no credibility. And even worse, from my perspective, a total loss of balls. He has completely lost his balls. Uh, I, I think that Dr. Uh, Fauci has at least one testicle. Uh, Ivanka might have the other testicle. And, uh, and he's flapping in the breeze. And he has very limited legal power in this situation, although his attorney general, Bill Barr, is trying to pretend otherwise. And boy, how bizarre is it? I mean, I hate Barr at least as much or more than I hate Trump. And, and Bill Barr might end up being a theoretical hero for those of us who are the subject of tyranny in states that are being shut down like here in California irrationally. Uh, we'll see about that. I don't know if, whether he's just saber rattling or if he's very serious about uh, making this a court fight. Uh, and then maybe these judges that Trump has appointed will finally uh, end up doing something worthwhile. But uh, the, the reality is that, that Trump is one day still pretending he has balls, then he goes back on it. He threw Georgia completely under the bus, told Georgia, go ahead and open up. And then in, when they announced they were going to open up, he said he strongly disagreed with it. Uh, and it's it's been very counterproductive. Now, what's interesting is while Trump still has not found his balls and we did an episode on Trump losing his balls a couple of uh, weeks ago, it is clear that Fox News Channel has had enough. Fox News Channel has now completely reversed the narrative. Uh, Tucker Carlson is maybe the best example of this because Tucker Carlson was someone who was someone at Fox News Channel who wanted to uh, to take the virus very, very seriously. And by the way, 
I have never said don't take the virus seriously. It's a very serious issue. It's unprecedented in, in our modern times, 100%. No one, no one questions that. It's just a matter of to what level is it and whether or not the way we're responding to it makes any damn sense in either the short or the long run. But now Tucker Carlson is calling for America to reopen and is being far more skeptical about the narrative surrounding the virus. Uh, Laura Ingram has also been that way at Fox News Channel, of course, Sean Hannity. So the opinion people at Fox News Channel, and it's important that people understand how this works. You know, I think there's a misconception when it comes to talk radio and Fox News Channel that somehow the hosts are driving the opinions of the viewers and the listeners. Sometimes that's the case, and there is often a symbiotic relationship there. But I sense this is one of those circumstances where the audience is driving the hosts. Fox News Channel, better than many, than probably any other media outlet, is very, very much in tune with what their audience wants. They can see it in the data. They can see it in, in online reactions. They know. And it's very obvious that within the last week or so, at least conservatives in this country have decided, all right, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Uh, We've had enough of this shutdown. We're going to endure enormous amounts of economic damage, uh, medical damage. We made a deal. The deal was to flatten the curve. Uh, We've now flattened the curve. It's time to open back up. And Fox News Channel is clearly echoing that sentiment, and they're doing so in a lot of ways. One of the ways in which they're doing it uh, actually touched my life, or I touched it, depending on your perspective, and it dealt with a a doctor by the name of Dr. Dan Erickson, who's an uh, urgent care doctor and runs an urgent care uh, program in Bakersfield, California, uh, which is just north of uh, Los Angeles. And uh, he became an, an overnight sensation because of a press conference he and his partner from the Urgent Care Center held uh, uh, last week re- regarding their belief that uh, California and the country in general needs to reopen because the data they're seeing does not justify Uh, the continued shutdown. Now, my role in this was small but interesting. Uh, When they did the press conference, the press conference was sent to my wife, who then showed it to me. And at the time, it was starting to get some traction on Facebook. And I watched the press conference, and I was enthralled. Now, there were a few things that Dr. Erickson said in his case that America should reopen that I did not agree with. And I had a, I had some problems with, like, for instance, and he would later end up getting crucified, I believe unfairly so largely, uh, for how he was coming up with his death rate projection, for instance, in New York. And he was using numbers that were not based in random sampling. And when you don't use random sampling, in other words, you're using, let's say, uh, you know, total new cases. When someone is tested positive for coronavirus, that's not random. The reason why they got the test was they were sick. So, so you can't extrapolate uh, for the larger population numbers based upon a non-random sampling. But that was actually a very small part of their argument. 
I thought the best part of their argument was all the collateral medical damage that is being done that they're seeing. He also alleged that the numbers were being played with and that doctors across the country and the doctors that he has spoken to across the country are feeling pressure to add deaths to the COVID list of the death toll, which I found to be very, very interesting. Uh, but by and large, uh, to me, the most important part that was uh, the, uh, the, uh, the point, most important point that was made at this press conference was that the numbers don't justify what we're doing and that what we're doing is actually going to cause more damage than the virus would. That was his basic argument. And the press conference was an hour. I found it to be very compelling. And I started sharing it on Facebook and on Twitter. To this day, if you, I believe, if you, although this might have changed in the last day or so, but as of a couple days ago, if you search Twitter for Dr. Erickson, my tweet of that press conference is what comes up. I know because it's been shared now uh, a ton of times, and I, I can tell whenever Dr. Erickson does a, a media appearance because that tweet will start to get shared again because people will start to uh, to search for it on Twitter. Now, um, so this, I think, was an important part of this press conference starting to go viral. And then behind the scenes, as I will do often, people don't know this, but I, this, is, this is how I, I work. I will work behind the scenes to try to get media coverage for someone who I think needs or deserves it. And so I started uh, pitching him to various major outlets, both in Los Angeles and nationwide. And then I had a conversation about a, a day and a half after this press conference that Dr. Erickson did that then went viral on Facebook. It ended up being viewed by millions of times on Facebook. And I had a conversation with him. It was a long conversation. It was a productive conversation. And I was trying to help him uh, because I realized that he was going to get destroyed by the news media. And that in order to protect getting destroyed by the news media, he needed to create a coalition of other like-minded doctors across the country. That he himself, if he did this by himself or even just with his partner, they were going to get destroyed. And that he needed to create this group. And he agreed in concept. And uh, he said that that's the way he was going to go. And I said, uh, look, um, you know, I do my podcast on Wednesdays. Can we plan on doing an interview with you on next Wednesday? He said, sure, let's just, you know, uh, you know, tighten that up uh, when we get closer. And I also said, and I would later text with him <clears throat> about this, I said, make sure, because you're going to eventually get bombarded with media requests, make sure before you do an adversarial interview that we have another conversation, because I want to help prepare you for what you're going to be up against. And he said, sure, no problem. So, to, not to my surprise at all, uh, after a few days of going viral on Facebook, Dr. Erickson and his partner get asked on Fox News Channel, and uh, it, which, of course, further uh, increases the virability of the original press conference. But then something very interesting happens. The backlash that I predicted occurs. And all sorts of so-called medical experts start to go after Dr. Erickson in a very strong way. And in in fact, they end up getting YouTube to take down at least one of the most viral videos from their press conference. You cannot be serious. That's right. This is how this works. So when you when a narrative is this set 
and a narrative is this important to the people who are in charge, uh, they will do anything to protect it. And so what ends up happening is you have a couple of nameless, faceless medical groups put out a statement condemning Dr. Erickson and his partner with no facts. The statement had no facts. They just condemned them and they urged people to censor them. They actually urged media to censor Dr. Erickson's opinions on this. Again, with no names, no facts. So then armed with that statement, his enemies can go to YouTube and say, see, see, this is a violation of your policy uh, on misinformation about COVID. You've got to take this down. And the morons at YouTube, and I guarantee there's no vetting of this. This is just done by some 24-year-old liberal in San Francisco. Uh, they decide, uh, okay, uh, we're taking the video down. And, uh, and so uh, Tucker Carlson actually did an entire segment about how YouTube had taken this down. And uh, and so that alone, the censorship part of this should be incredibly upsetting, even if you believe Dr. Erickson is full of crap and he's not really qualified to to talk about this on a national level. Uh, even if you believe that YouTube has no right to ta- to take the damn uh, video down. Um, but to me, I'm, I actually am more interested in the reaction to Dr. Erickson's Uh, views on this and the popularity of his views on this than I am what his views are. Because his views are actually shared by a lot of other people. They just didn't go viral and they didn't do it in in quite as confrontational a way, confrontational to the narrative as Dr. Erickson uh, has been doing. And therefore, I think he, he was seen as a threat. And so when you're seen as a threat, you are eliminated in this environment. I mean, the way the media works here is a lot like the mob. If you are part of the club, if you have allegiance to the club, to the family and to the narrative, you are protected. Like Andrew Cuomo, he is protected. It doesn't matter how many people in New York die. uh, He is protected because he is part of the mob. And I'm not making any allusions to the fact that he's Italian, all right? This is nothing to do with being Italian. This is the way of the mentality here. Those that are allied with and have allegiance to the narrative and they're on the right team, they are protected. Those who defy that narrative, they get destroyed. They get taken out. And Dr. Erickson needed to be taken out because he was a problem, especially coming here in in California, where the argument is the strongest for reopening here in California. Because here in California, we continue to have very little sign of the virus. They are testing like mad now in California. Our, Our rate of testing has exploded. It's almost like they're looking for new cases because they can cannot find any. Now, I'm all for testing, by the way. The more you test, the more information you have, the more you find out where the problem is or if you have the problem, I'm, I get it. But despite an explosion in testing, our daily ca- new cases has remained almost exactly the same. A little over a thousand a day, almost every single day. The deaths continue to be incredibly low. And we've just learned We just learned in the last 24 hours or so that, get this, of our deaths, which are still below 2,000, of our deaths, at least 40% are directly from nursing homes. From nursing homes. It's just flat out ridiculous. Nursing homes in a state of 40 million people, less than 2,000 deaths, 
for at least 40% of which are in nursing homes. I'm not saying if you die in a nursing home, it doesn't count. I'm saying two things. First of all, let's face it, you go to a nursing home to die. That's what you go to a nursing home for. But number two, it's a location. The problem is a location. I continue to say this. It's about location. Dangerous locations, constant exposure to dangerous locations. It is not about casual contact with human beings. Every single major outbreak has been consistent with that, including in New York City. And by the way, speaking of Andrew Cuomo, how amazing is this? To give you a real-world example of how the media protects those that are part of their club, part of their family. Just today, Andrew Cuomo said, you know what? We're going to make sure the New York City subway system is cleaned on a daily basis. Just today. You cannot be serious. What? You can make an incredibly strong argument, as MIT has done, an MIT professor I spoke to extensively. I talked about that in the last episode of the podcast. You can make an incredibly strong argument that the New York City subway system is literally the reason why we are in a catastrophic situation in very small parts of the country. I'm going to get to that data in a moment uh, and because it is dramatic. Uh, but the idea that somehow just now the MTA in New York has finally said, you know what, it might be a good idea if we do a thorough cleaning on a daily basis of the New York City subway system. Really? Wow. Unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, uh, and, and yet Andrew Cuomo... The governor of the state, the guy in charge of that, uh, is is somehow a hero. Uh, I, I, it's 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 absolutely astonishing, and I'm, I guarantee you, no one in the media will call him on this. And let's be clear: this I, I talk a lot about narrative, and people misunderstand where I'm going with this and why narratives are important. The MTA is slow to it, very slow, incredibly slow, as is Governor Cuomo, incredibly slow to accept the idea that the New York City subway system is a major, 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 major problem here because guess what? If that's accepted as true, then they fucked up. Then this is on them. That they're the reason why New York City and the surrounding areas have been such a horror show when... Cuomo on April the 2nd tweeted that this virus is a rolling hurricane that will eventually impact the rest of the country just like us. That was almost a month ago. There's been literally zero sign of that rolling hurricane to that level impacting anywhere else because nowhere else has the New York City subway system or mass transit to the other areas that have been just as greatly impacted. Back to Dr. Erickson for a second, though. And this doesn't directly have to do with the narrative and how this all works out, but has more to do with the way the media works and what happens when you get involved in a firestorm. And I've been involved in more than my share of firestorms, so I get it. So you're probably wondering, so, John, why isn't Dr. Erickson on the podcast? Well, guess what happens? So yesterday in the morning, I, I, say, I text uh, Dr. Erickson. I say, um, so, you know, as we discussed previously, uh, I'm taping the, the podcast tomorrow. Can you come on and uh, do an interview with us? I get no response. I wait a few hours. Hey, any thoughts on this? No response. By finally last night 
after he does a few more uh, TV interviews, I get uh, a response, hey, um, contact my publicist. And this is at night for, for, for an interview the next morning. I'm like, you can, Dr. Erickson, you cannot possibly be serious. Uh, after we've had this conversation, I, I stuck my neck out for you. Uh, I, I, I did all these things behind the scenes trying to help you out here. I gave you advice, and you sent me to your publicist? Really? Come on. You cannot be serious. So I basically told him to go fuck himself. So, so, so Dr. Erickson will not be on the podcast. And, and frankly, while I think he is right and I have defended the nitpicking uh, of his statistical error, like, let's be clear, it was a statistical error, but it was a statistical error without any real impact. But it shows the lengths to which the other side will go to destroy somebody and the standard of proof they will hold anybody who goes against their narrative. I love, I love that Dr. Erickson somehow is not credible because he didn't use a random sampling to come up with his number. By the way, a number that other people who have used random sampling and involving antibodies have come up with, and the number is almost the same. It's effectively in the same ballpark. We're just arguing about decimal points. So th- th- this somehow is totally discredited. But Dr. Fauci predicting that we're going to have 240,000 deaths well after the lockdown and being completely wrong about that, well, that doesn't discredit him at all because he's a celebrity. And when you watch, I still urge you to watch the press conference. You can find it at my Twitter feed or maybe a couple other places, but not, certainly not on YouTube, apparently. Uh, but when you watch it, the media reaction is literally hysterical. The, 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 if I could summarize the media reaction, Dr. Erickson is, um, excuse us, you're not a celebrity. Why should we believe anything you say? That, that's, a, that's essentially the media argument. And yet, because Fauci is a a liberal media darling and he's famous, he can get away with being completely and totally wrong on actual things that matter. Uh, Projections that impacted incredibly important decisions all over the country on a a projection that was completely and totally wrong that he he contradicted himself a week later with nothing changing in between. He gets a total pass. But uh, but Dr. Erickson gets completely destroyed because of of an error or uh, that really has very little impact on the overall argument. The overall argument is still sound. Um, and and while I'm sure he's busy, uh, I'm sorry. You know, I, I have no problem telling him to go fuck himself because uh, I deserve better than that. And I also don't think that. Unfortunately, he's going to be very helpful now because he's going about this all wrong from a media standpoint. I get that you have to do Fox News Channel to play to the base of people who are open to this message. But you've got to go on CNN, MSNBC, and you've got to do it in a way that will be taken seriously. And you can't do that when you're standing alone. You need what I told him from the beginning, which is you need a consortium, uh, a group, a coalition of doctors who are of like mind. That way they can't take out one individual and have that person be the face of that perspective. And then they can nitpick you on being wrong about this one stat. Uh, So good luck to Dr. Erickson. I told him that in text. Good luck to you. uh, But uh, I'm done with Dr. Erickson. Now, as far as the the stats are concerned, uh, worldwide, we now have 3.2 million cases and over uh, 220,000 deaths. That's a lot of deaths in a short period of time. 
But again, just for some perspective, worldwide, and we never get detailed numbers on this, so this it's comparing apples to oranges in some ways, but in an average year, or average flu season, 665,000 people die worldwide. 665,000 people die of the flu worldwide. Now, we're going we're to get a lot more deaths of the coronavirus, and I'm, I'm just putting it out there for some perspective. This is, in many areas, way worse than the flu. In the New York City area, it's way worse than the flu for reasons that make perfect sense. Here in California, the numbers are basically like a bad flu season. Other areas of the country, Florida, despite what the media wants badly, Texas, uh, many other rural areas. This is a bad flu season. That's what this is. Not worthy of this kind of dramatic and very counterproductive shutdown at this point now that we know that this is not a horrendous situation. And I get, but John, the numbers are the way they are because of the lockdown. Well, I, I, I am, I'm open to that. I'd like to see some proof of that. Uh, I'm sure that it mitigates to some degree, but it's not magic. And, and part of why I, I strongly believe that it's not magic is the situation in New York City. There are five states that are directly connected to New York City via mass transit. Obviously, New York State, New, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. The areas hardest hit in this whole thing in the Northeast are New York City, northern New Jersey, Connecticut, Boston, and Philadelphia. All of those places just happen to be directly connected via mass transit to New York City. But not just subways, but obviously trains, buses, taxis, whatever. There's all sorts of ways that mass transit from New York City, the tentacles of that work into these areas that are directly impacted. Those five states, and let's be clear, in Pennsylvania, for instance, in rural Pennsylvania, there's almost no sign of this. But in Philadelphia, which has an incredibly strong connection to New York City versus via the trains and elsewhere, that this is a bad situation. Not, not catastrophic, thankfully, but much worse than average. Well, if you take those five states, that is 16% of the population of the United States of America. 16%. Those five states that I just mentioned. Currently, as of yesterday, those five states account for... 62% of the deaths in the United States of America. So 16% of the population, by the way, that's actually deceiving because upstate New York and most of Pennsylvania have seen very little impact of this. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure the same thing could be said of Massachusetts outside of Boston. So, so um, this, these are stats that actually are worse than, or better, depending on your perspective, uh, than they sound. But though just simplifying it as much as possible, 16% of the population in the United States accounts for 62% of the deaths. We currently have about 60,000 deaths in America. Now, I am taking issue. I'm using, I'm using the official numbers. I do not believe that the New York City numbers are uh, 100% credible anymore. And, and part of why I don't believe it is because Andrew Cuomo himself uh, tweeted at a time when New York had 21,000 deaths. He was upset about Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, attacking New York and saying states should go bankrupt. And he referenced 
that New York has had 15,000 deaths because of this. I'm like, what? Whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Holy Freudian slip. <laughs> your, your official total is 21,000. Why are you saying 15,000? I'm not suggesting some sort of conspiracy. There's been a change in the way that the numbers are accounted for. And the, the policy is basically anybody who dies of anything that could be COVID is counted as COVID. But I'm using the larger official number here. And so America now has over 60,000 deaths. If the five states that I just referenced were in the normal range of the rest of the country, which I strongly believe is because of their connection to New York City, that's why they're not normal. If they had been normal, we would now be in the range of 30,000 deaths nationwide. 30,000 deaths nationwide of largely older people. By the way, why can no one tell me what the average age is of the people who have died of this is? I have tried everywhere. I can't find a specific number. The way the stats are done, you, you cannot come up with, with 100% certainty what the average age is. But it appears to be clearly in the 70s. Again, doesn't mean, doesn't matter, but it's important for perspective. So we would have 30,000 deaths over a couple-month period of time, which is a really, really bad flu situation. That's what this would be if not for the New York City circumstances. And in many parts of the country, that's what this currently is. Again, I get, oh, but John, mitigation. Um, yeah, uh, let, let's, let's see. Let's see whether or not the stats in other places bear out the power or the magic of mitigation or lockdown or shutdown. Uh, you know, we're going to eventually have, it looks like, over 70,000 deaths by mid-May. Might even be more than that, but it, it seems to be where we're headed. Over 70,000 uh, in mid-May mid when this should finally start to diminish greatly. At least that's what everyone's hoping for. That's what the numbers look like currently. And that is a major, major number in a short period of time. Way, way, way worse than a normal flu. Way worse. But that doesn't necessarily, just any way, shape, or form, justify what we have done here. And there are several places where the media is hyper-focused on making sure people perceive that their decisions not to shut down in, in quite the same way are, uh, are, are seen as a disaster. That uh, these are places where there almost seems to be a rooting interest in there being death and doom and destruction. I've talked a lot about Florida fitting into that category. It appears to me as if the media is finally starting to wave the white flag on Florida uh, because Florida is just not turning out to be uh, the, the, the doomsday scenario that the media had predicted back when the spring breakers were all on the beach and what have you. Internationally, a lot of focus now on Sweden. Sweden obviously has become famous for their very laid-back attitude towards this from the standpoint of restrictions. Sweden absolutely had a higher-than-average number of deaths early on. But people don't seem to understand that this is not a short game we're playing here. I don't think you're going to know how any one country did in this situation for at least a year. Because in a year, uh, we will have theoretically gone through a second wave if there is one. Hopefully, by that point, there's some sort of vaccine. We don't know, but we're hoping uh, the numbers will be able to even out over a, long, of a, a longer period of time, over a full year. 
And it is my uh, estimation, looking at the numbers in Sweden, which have stabilized and have actually gone down up until uh, today uh, over the last several days, and they're still not dramatic when it comes to death, that Sweden eventually is going to even out here. And in the long run, because they're not creating as much uh, collateral damage, I still believe Sweden is going to be ahead of the game a year from now. Uh, But the cherry-picking on their stats is astonishing, although not all that surprising because I predicted it. And and the cherry-picking issue is a massive problem, and it's going to cause a major problem for the reopening of America because the media is invested in this narrative, and here's why it matters. It's not just theoretical. It's not just about who's right and wrong. Because the media is invested in the narrative, now they are invested in destroying anyone who tries to open up. And because the nature of the data makes it so incredibly easy to cherry pick, that will not be tough. Let me give you two examples. Iowa and Georgia are now the new targets of the virtue signaling, uh, concern trolling uh, left-wing media. Iowa never shut down. And so now there's all these stories, and I even confronted one uh, very liberal reporter about this yesterday, and hilarity ensued, where they're trying to cherry-pick numbers from a couple of plants, again, locations, that have had an outbreak in Iowa and show that somehow this is proof that Iowa is suffering because it did not shut down. Well, first of all, these plants, would have, most of them, would have been open anyway, uh, even in a shutdown, because they were essential businesses. Uh, and number two, we don't have enough data yet. Let's wait and see. The numbers in Iowa currently are well below average as far as uh, deaths per capita. Georgia, the first state to close down and then reopen. Boy, the media really wants that to be a disaster. And because of the nature of the data, it's going to be incredibly easy for them to cherry pick data and intimidate leaders who are already being attacked by the media to cave and to reverse themselves. This is what's going to happen. It's going to be incredibly easy. My gosh, I've seen so much cherry picking. I I, I got into a, a battle on Twitter today with a, 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 I guess she's a doctor. She claims to be a doctor, a Dr. Dina uh, Grayson, who um, who's totally in on the narrative, uh, you know, completely uh, in favor of all the shutdowns, believes that shutdowns have saved millions of people. And what example does she use? She says cases in Germany are surging. They're surging. And that Germany may have to reverse its shutdown. And I'm like, Germany? So, of course, I go and I look at the stats, and um, Germany is actually a dramatic success story in all this so far. Uh, Their cases have been going down at a a very clear rate for the last couple of weeks, and just today, Germany, a pretty large country uh, uh, with a large population, has 500 and I think 67 new cases and 16 deaths. 567 new cases and 16 deaths in Germany. And this is supposed to be evidence of a surge. And I've talked about this many, many times. One of the major problems with the data is there's a lag. There's at least a one to three week lag from the time. And although this number might be shrinking now that testing has gotten better, but there's a a significant lag from the time someone contracts the virus and they become a statistic as a new case. And so 
this is why the cherry picking issue is going to be so important. You can find whatever you want in the data, whatever you want. You just got to wait. Just wait for a bad day, or a statistical noise, or I, this is my new favorite, the rate of increase, the rate of increase. You know what the rate of increase is? The rate of increase is a stat that if you look at it in the micro over a day or two can be easy, easily manipulated if you've had a lot of good data. In other words, if your cases are so low that any kind of an increase happens just by happenstance or statistical noise, guess what? You've got an increasing rate. You've got a rate of increase that's, that's startling. That's an indication of a future surge. No. No, it could just be an indication of some data noise and an indication of congratulations. You've done such a good job of reducing cases that the numbers are so low that it's really easy to get a big rate of increase. That's the way so much of this is people don't understand the way statistics work and they have an agenda about the stats. But the stats are going to matter because intimidation is a weapon. Intimidation is a weapon that's going to be used by the media, especially in this country, to target those who try to open up because they don't want those openings to be successful because if those openings are successful and it turns out that nothing horrendous happens, guess what? They were wrong. They panicked. They overreacted. They shut down the country. They, they took away basic uh, individual constitutional rights, and they did so unnecessarily. So they are invested, and they need, they desperately need a Georgia of the world to have made a mistake by opening up. And, of course, Donald Trump doesn't help in all this because he threw Georgia under the bus, as I told you earlier. He, he's, he's protecting himself. And so if even Donald Trump is saying this is a bad idea, then the, the governor of Georgia has no backside protection. He's going to get, he, it's, he, he is incredibly vulnerable if this thing doesn't turn out right. And that's my great fear, is that the, the cherry picking of the data is going to scare people. And then once we reverse the opening, now there's no going back. That once you start to reverse openings, then everyone's going to be terrified. And then Governor Newsom here in California looks like a hero for uh, deciding we're not going to open for several months, even though our statistics show that we have no nothing close to a catastrophic situation. So all of this is creating an, an extremely combustible circumstance. I cannot think of a worse recipe for division in this country. I have been one of those that has long predicted that we are heading for some sort of, I don't know what you want to call it, a civil war, but clearly civil division, the likes of which we have not seen since the civil war. If you ask me, come up with a scenario that would more facilitate a circumstance that could lead to something like a civil war, I could not possibly come up with one better than this or worse than this. I predicted weeks ago that this was going to end up in a red state versus blue state battle. Trump himself is facilitating the red state versus blue state uh, divisions. Uh, Bill Barr is going to be facilitating the red state versus blue state divisions. The red states being the Trump states, they are going to abide far more by what happens on Fox News Channel, what the conservative base believes, and what Trump wants 
than the blue states. The blue states are going to react in exactly the opposite direction. I'm convinced that part of the reason Newsom uh, will not, Governor Newsom will not open up California is because he wants to defy Donald Trump. Maybe because he's looking as, at a future presidential bid. He's also personally invested in the narrative that he has saved millions and millions of people when, as I've said many times before, that narrative is nonsensical. We had this in California since at least December and January. He actually shut down late. He just got lucky because California, for a number of reasons, including the fact that we may have a completely different strain of this than New York City does, and there's scientific evidence to back that up, was never going to be in a catastrophic circumstance. But there is no question that Tensions are rising. I'm seeing it uh, not just in things I'm witnessing uh, via social media and on the news, but in my own personal life. Uh, there, is no, there is no middle ground here. That's part of what is so dangerous. There's no middle ground. People are getting very restless. They're getting nervous. They're, they're, their nerves are fried. They've had enough of the shutdown. Uh, I've already lost friends about over this whole situation. Some people I've known for a long period of time. It's much like my position on Donald Trump, only in the opposite direction. And, and it's not on purpose. I don't like having that happen. Uh, but, but this is one of those issues that is so divisive that there's, no, there's literally no way for people to communicate. If you believe that this is the worst thing that's ever happened, that we need to shut down the world, that you're afraid for your life, you cannot have a conversation with someone who says, hold on a second, uh, this is bad, we need to take precautions, we need to, to uh, you know, make sure the vulnerable are taken as much care of as possible, but we need to go on with life in a common sense fashion, you can't have a conversation. And part of the reason why you can't have a conversation is because Donald Trump's shadow hangs over all of this. And, and it's hilarious now that I'm now being perceived as somehow a, a Donald Trump supporter. You cannot be serious! Because I'm someone who doesn't buy into the left-wing narrative on this and who believes that what the left is doing is at least as scary as some of the things that Trump is doing. As, as much as I've already articulated, he's blown this from A to Z in every possible way. But there's no question that the natives are getting restless. Protests are increasing all over the country. I, I am unconvinced that they will be effective, largely because they appear to be you know, white Trump-supporting you know, old uh, Tea Party members who are uh, protesting in ways that are inherently seen and in pictures as anti-social distancing and so they might end up being counterproductive but there's so many elements of this divide and that's why i do believe that america may be headed for a breakdown if not a breakup as this thing goes forward let me tell you about one thing that i've noticed and i've had a lot of people tell me about that the media is not picking up on because this doesn't fit their narrative uh, but it's something that republican senators were very concerned about when the whole bailout bill was being debated and it got a little bit of publicity for about five minutes and then everyone caved because of all the pressure to get, a, you know, twelve hundred bucks into the hands of of uh, potential voters as quickly as possible. And that's this issue of the perverse incentives regarding unemployment. I have spoken to numerous people uh, who are, are in the small business world who are now looking at situations where they may not be able to get their employees back because it's better for them to be unemployed. 
And these employees have the ultimate excuse now. Well, I'm afraid of the virus. I don't think it's safe. Uh, you know, I, I can't come back. And so we have this bizarro, and I'm not saying that that's illegitimate. Fine. You don't want to do that. That's fine. But we're now, we've created enormous disincentives for people to come back to certain jobs. And so we may have this bizarro world situation where we have massive unemployment, and yet it's very difficult to find workers. Some who have legitimate concerns about the virus, but many of whom, at least in the short run, have been incentivized to sit home and do nothing. They're making at least as much, if not more money, doing nothing. So why go back and take a theoretical risk in contracting the virus when you could be sitting home on your ass watching Netflix and getting more money. Now, that's not going to last forever, but that's going to be a problem. I see it as another problem, by the way, when it comes to opening schools. My wife and all of her family are educators, and they're all of the belief that opening up schools has got a major problem no one wants to talk about, and that is teachers are not incentivized to go back. Currently here in California, and I've you know, I got a seven-year-old who's, who's online teaching is a complete joke. It's a, it's a farce. It's nothing but an excuse for schools to pretend that they didn't really close. It's the easiest gig in the world for a teacher. Twice a week for a half hour on Zoom, you ask kids to tell every, all, every other kid in the class what they've been doing over the last uh, few days. That's it. Then you go back home, or you're already at home, you go back to eating Twinkies and and watching television, and you're getting paid full salary. So, So what is the incentive for teachers to stop this scam? It doesn't exist, especially when they've got a very strong union, and... And they get the ultimate excuse if this becomes a media issue. Well, we don't feel safe because of the virus. Well, you can't argue with that because that narrative's already been set. So, so how in the world are you going to reopen schools when teachers are disincentivized, especially in certain areas of the country, to actually allow that to happen? Online learning, as much of a scam as that is, from an education perspective, is fantastic for teachers. So no one wants to talk about these things because it doesn't fit the narrative. The media is not interested in this. And the the media will continue to cherry-pick the data to support the narrative that they want. And uh, I continue to believe, I continue to believe that as, as trivial as it sounds, that football is going to be a massive issue here and that California is going to be an incredible impediment to there being football. I believe that without a football season, America does not reopen for uh, at, at least until the next spring because football would be a permission slip for everyone else to go back to normal life. And I believe that football is going to be stopped or at least attempted to be stopped by Governor Gavin Gavin Newsom here in California. His ability to do that just increased this week because he added governors of states with NFL teams and college teams to his coalition. The coalition, which I believe ought to be named the coalition to resuscitate Donald Trump's reelection efforts, because I think this is the one path Trump might have to to reelection. And I, I, I've spoken to a, a local uh, television reporter here in Los Angeles, who's a friend of mine, uh, where we have two NFL teams, 
And and they've been doing some behind-the-scenes reporting. They've talked about this a little bit publicly on television. They now believe that the National Football League has decided they need to go around California. And based upon the people she's spoken to, this is all off the record, uh, or at least not for, for quotation right now, but they believe that uh, the NFL teams in California may end up trying to play in Utah or Arizona, as insane as that seems. That's how much of an impediment California is going to be. All of these things sow further division and dissension. Red state versus blue state. People who want to open back up versus people who are completely committed to the current narrative and shutting things down. And Trump's shadow is over all of it. Because whether you want to believe it or not, uh, and I'm one of the few people who can see it as a conservative who loathes Trump, I can see that it's not dictating the opinion of the left, but it's imbuing those opinions on the shutdown with steroid-like power because of their hatred of Donald Trump. Andrew Cuomo famously said that the virus is like the flu on steroids. I believe that to be true. But the left's view of the shutdown <laughs> is, is put on steroids because of their hatred, understandable at times, of Donald Trump. But they're overreacting. They're overplaying their hand. It's the number one thing I know about Democrats and liberals. They will always, 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 always overplay the, their hand. And they might just do it in a way that allows for Donald Trump's reelection. We don't know that yet, but it's possible. Now, there's been a major development with regard to uh, whether or not uh, there's going to be a third party candidate. And that is that former Republican congressman, now independent congressman, Justin Amash of Michigan, who we talked a lot about during the whole uh, Russia investigation. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Because he uh, was outspoken against Donald Trump during that, and he voted to impeach him over the Ukrainian uh, scandal. And I believe is the only guy that's been consistent throughout all of this. I don't agree with him on everything, but he's a libertarian, and I'm a libertarian. So philosophically, I'm aligned with him. And he has announced, essentially, that he is going to try to run for president as the libertarian candidate. I hope this happens. This will give people like me someone to vote for. I, well, I was astonished to see on Twitter last night, although I shouldn't have been based upon what I've learned about the so-called Never Trump conservative movement over the last several months, that the per- professional Never Trump conservatives, the so-called principled conservatives, were all very, very, very much against Justin Amash running for president. Now, I'm sure we'll talk about all of this more extensively in a future episode of the podcast, but just to give you the Reader's Digest version, I don't buy this idea that somehow Justin Amash is going to help Donald Trump. I do not understand this logic at all. The logic, I guess, is that anyone who is anti-Trump will vote for Joe Biden, and that, therefore, anything that prevents people from voting for Joe Biden is helpful to Donald Trump. Um, Okay, except there are a lot of people, especially now uh, post-shutdown, that are going to be very hesitant to vote for Joe Biden and might be so terrified by the liberal overreach on the shutdown, they might be tempted to even vote for Donald Trump. Those people will be prevented from doing so because they have a safety valve in voting for Justin Amash. So I think it's at worst a wash now, and the only state it might really matter in is Michigan, because that's Amash's home state. Michigan is a very important state. So I'm not diminishing the significance of any of this, but I don't buy the premise. 
But what bothers me more than anything is how the hell is it that people that are claiming to be principled conservatives finally have a principled conservative running and they're trying to destroy him? It's just, it's just unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. And it, and it so exposes what these people have really become. They are nothing but pawns of the Democrats and of the far left because that, that's, those, that's who their owners are now. They are slaves to their owners, their owners on MSNBC, their owners on CNN, uh, their owners uh, who are liberal, woke uh, Twitter followers. I mean, these people are in love with their Twitter followings and the fact that they're still relevant. And again, this deserves an entirely different episode of the podcast. But uh, the Amash announcement really exposed what a bunch of frauds almost all these people really are. Uh, I've been asked to talk about the the Joe Biden Tara Reid allegations, and uh, we're running out of time here. This actually has gone way longer than normal on this podcast. And so um, I'm not going to do a full examination of the sexual assault allegations against uh, Joe Biden on this particular show. I'm going to save that uh, for the next episode. Uh, However, I do have a column about this, which you can find at our Twitter feed, which is at individual one pod. That's at individual number one pod, as well as my own uh, Twitter feed. Uh, The New York Post actually picked up my mediate column on the Joe Biden, Tara Reid uh, sex abuse allegations and the hypocrisy that everybody is showing, especially when you compare the evidence that Tara Reid now has, which is far superior to what Christine Ford had against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. And the media went bananas over that. Uh, but now because it's Joe Biden, uh, they're completely and totally, almost completely and totally silent, uh, even though there's been this amazing uh, video that has come forward uh, from 1993 with Tara Reid's mom calling into Larry King live to talk about a problem that her daughter had in the context of sexual abuse with a prominent senator. That was the exact same time she was leaving Joe Biden's office. To be clear, I don't believe Tara Reid's story that she was sexually assaulted in a hallway uh, by Joe Biden. There's a lot of problems with her story. My concern here is the media hypocrisy and the different standards being used to evaluate Christine Ford and to evaluate her. But I do think it's a potential problem for Biden because the Me Too movement is is going to be really conflicted about this. Uh, And anything that creates division within the Democratic Party and and the liberal base is not helpful for him. So it is relevant, and I will talk about it more extensively in the next episode of the podcast. Uh, The stock market is way up today on hopes of a new life-saving treatment. We've heard this before. This one seems to maybe have a little bit more substance to it, but, boy, the stock market is super optimistic about this. I I still believe that that's premature. Uh, This uh, new uh, life-saving treatment apparently does not involve injecting disinfectant into people. So it's important uh, that you understand that. Correct. Uh, But, you know, right now, the there is a narrative still. I continue to harp on this. There is a narrative for a comeback for Donald Trump. That window is closing fast, but it still exists. And Democratic overreach is making that more and more possible. So because of the disinfectant comments, which I do think left the mark, I'm going to slightly lower the chances of Donald Trump's reelection from 40 percent to 35 percent. Uh, still an underdog. He would lose today. He would lose to Joe Biden today if the election was today. But the election's not today. 
It's uh, several months from now, and a lot can and will happen between now and then. That'll do it for this edition of the Individual One uh, podcast. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual the Number One Pod. That's at Individual the Number One Pod. Until next week, my name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network. Network.